Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. Last week, um, we were started working our way here through First uh, Corinthians 13. And uh, I had given you three possible views about uh, the tongues of angels, what those uh, could have been. And uh, another believer uh, pointed out to me that one of those views that I had given was an error. And um, after looking at it, considering it, and things like that, I I do realize that uh, what I said was an error. And uh, this is what I said. Uh, concerning the tongues of angels, that Paul was simply referring to a common belief in the Corinthian church that the gift of tongues was a gift of angelic languages, and he used this phrase to gain their attention, not in agreement to their belief of angelic languages, but only so he could speak to the issue at hand. And the reason why this is an error is because the Word of God is never wrong, and never sides in agreement with something that is not true. So by saying that Paul agreed with their belief, like, I agree with you on this, um, basically, um, we're saying that the Word of God can be in agreement with something that is not true, uh, because Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is dangerous because believing that God's word can be in agreement with something that is not true can open up the church to accepting all kinds of heretical heresy and sinful living. So I just wanted to correct that uh, with that. So we're going to be here in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, again, we've been teaching here on the spiritual gifts, uh, what God's word says about them. And uh, if you recall, there's four main passages of the spiritual gifts that tell us what uh, the spiritual gifts are. Uh, We find that in Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 12. And uh, as we've looked at 1 Corinthians 12, in connection with that is 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 Corinthians 14. And those three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, really help us understand how the spiritual gifts are supposed to be used uh, within the church. And so last week we started looking at uh, 1 Corinthians 13, how the gifts were supposed to be used, and that they're always supposed to be used in connection with love. That's how they work. They work together with love. And uh, so you can recall what we looked at. Uh, Paul concluded in verses 1 through 3 that Uh, What he says is meaningless without love. Uh, We accomplish nothing in what we do, and we gain nothing in what we give without love. And uh, so the gifts were not the issue. The issue was in how those gifts were being used, and the gifts weren't being used in love at all. And uh, so Paul's trying to help us understand how the gifts are supposed to be used. Remember, this, uh, this passage is not a passage about relationships. It's not a passage about marriage. It's not a passage about uh, friendships. It's supposed to be about how the gifts are supposed to be used. That's the context of 1 Corinthians 13. So let's read here 1 Corinthians 13 again. And uh, we're primarily going to be looking at uh, verses uh, 4 
uh, through uh, 6 here this morning. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. One of the things that we're going to be looking at here today is I want you to see how the Word of God describes love for us. And you cannot help but see in uh, the description that, uh, that God's Word gives here with that. Last week, I gave you a definition of biblical love by uh, Sam Storms, which I thought was a very good definition. But we have to remember that definitions, although they are helpful okay, by, uh, by men, when men give a biblical definition, they're helpful. We must remember that they always fall short of God's um, accuracy and authority of what he actually says. And so we're actually going to look allow the scripture to speak for itself of what love is. And so one thing I want you to notice is how love is described. You'll notice Paul is going to use two positive descriptions of love, but then it's going to be followed by seven negative descriptions of what love is. And that's, that's a kind of reoccurring theme that you see uh, throughout uh, Scripture. Yes, Scripture does have some positives in it, but also Scripture has a lot of negatives in it. I mean, just look at the Ten Commandments, right? So there's, there's positive and there's negative. And uh, in this case, in 1 Corinthians 13, there tends to be more negative of what love is not. And I believe that's because that's exactly how these Corinthian uh, believers were acting and behaving. And uh, so we're going to look at these verses here in detail, verses 4 through 6. And I want you to see the deficiency and lack of love that these believers had. And if we inspect our own life, I believe and examine our own heart, perhaps we'll see that uh, we also are deficient and lack the biblical love as described in this passage. So here's what I'd like for you to take away with you today. Use the description of love to examine yourself if you are behaving that way. Use the description of love to examine yourself if you are behaving that way. 
So let's take notice here, a couple things here. Number one, God's positive description of what love is. Now, Paul's going to list here two descriptions of what love is, okay? Now, these are the positive descriptions. So first of all, positive description number one, we see that love is patient. Paul begins his description here of love in verse four with the words, love is patient. Now, the King James uh, Version renders it, suffereth long, um, or suffers long if you have the uh, New King James Version. And I, I believe this word is best translated as long-suffering. Okay? Uh, in uh, W.E. Vine's Expository Dictionary, and if, uh, if you want to do any type of serious Bible study uh, on your own, I recommend you get one, W.E. Vine's Dictionary. It's also available online for free, so if you want to do some uh, studying that way, you can do that. But uh, W.E. Vine's Expository Dictionary, uh, he sums it up this way. He indicates that long-suffering is the most frequent meaning of the term in the Bible, and he distinguishes long-suffering from patience. Uh, here in the ESV, it renders it patience. But he renders it, and he says, there's the difference between the two, long-suffering and patience, which I think uh, long-suffering is, uh, is a better word here uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13.4. But this is what he says. Long-suffering is that quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation, which does not hastily retaliate or promptly punish. It is the opposite of anger and is associated with mercy, and it is used of God in Exodus 34.6, Romans 2.4, 1 Peter uh, 3.20. Patience is the quality that does not surrender to circumstances or succumb under trial. It is the opposite of despondency, and it is associated with hope. And uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.3, um, it is not used of God. So uh, we see here that uh, love is supposed to be long-suffering, uh, as it's described in Scripture. In uh, Matthew Henry's commentary on 1 Corinthians 13.4, Matthew Henry says of the term long-suffering, it can endure evil, injury, without being filled with resentment, indignation, or revenge. It makes the mind firm, gives it power over the angry passions, and furnishes it with a persevering patience that shall rather wait and wish for the reformation of a brother than fly out in resentment of his conduct. It will put up with many slights and neglects from the person it loves and wait long to see the kindly effects of such patience on him." End quote. So God, we see in Scripture, is very long-suffering. We see this in Exodus 34, 6, Romans 2, 4, Romans 9, 22, 1 Timothy 1, 16, and also 1 Peter 3, 20, and 2 Peter 3, 9, and also verse 15. And so God's Word is very descriptive of describing Him as being long-suffering. Uh, here's Exodus 34, 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He's slow to anger. He's long-suffering. 
Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, his long-suffering, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Romans 9, 22 says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? 1 Timothy 1.16 says, And yet for this reason I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And so we see clearly that this is a, a description of who God is. God is long-suffering. And as believers in Christ, if we say that we are loving... That means that we need to be long-suffering when uh, people do things that are wrong to us or we feel uh, that they have offended us in some way. We have to be long-suffering. David is an example of someone who was long-suffering while under tremendous persecution. Uh, We see this in uh, 1 Samuel uh, 24. Uh, King Saul was was persistent in, in trying to kill David after he found out that David was going to be the king. And uh, so uh, here's, uh, here's David. He, he's on the run, and Paul is, is pursuing after him. And it's interesting. We find that uh, David, he's, he's, uh, he's in a cave there, and actually Saul comes into the cave to relieve himself, and David has the opportunity to kill Saul. And instead, he takes a, a, a piece of his, uh, his garment, uh, cuts it off, cuts off uh, Saul's garment, and he shows him, says, hey, look, I had every opportunity to kill you, but I didn't. And so here's a good example of somebody who is long-suffering. We also see the greatest example of long-suffering is our Lord Jesus in providing salvation to us. Listen to what uh, 1 Timothy, why don't you turn over there real quick with me, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look at verse number uh, 12 here. Paul here is going to use himself as an example of the great magnitude of Christ's patience. Okay, look, listen to what he says here, 1 Timothy 1.12. He says, I thank him, who? Jesus, right? Who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formally... I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He's the chief of sinners. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the chiefest of sinners, right, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so Paul here, as he describes it, he had not just sinned in blaspheming and and inflicting injury on the saints, but he had done his deeds with a proud and haughty and arrogant and insolent spirit, and he acted in a wicked, malicious, violent way. It was a spirit of tyranny, right? And he does all of this against who? He was doing this against God. 
And in all of it, what does uh, God do? He displays his long suffering towards him and uh, giving him grace and mercy. And Paul says, look at me as an example. He says, Christ has given me mercy. Christ has given me long suffering. He's been patient with me. And this is an example for you to see that. And so the greatest example of long-suffering is our Lord Jesus in providing salvation to us. Long-suffering is not optional as a believer. It's not optional. It is a fruit of the Spirit, and we are commanded to be long-suffering. Galatians 5.22 tells us that it is one of the fruits of the Spirit's. Ephesians 4.2 says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. And so Paul is trying to point out to these believers, he says, look, you want to see what love really is? This is how you're supposed to be exercising. Your spiritual gifts supposed to be doing it in love. You're supposed to be using it. And here's the example. You're supposed to be long-suffering towards individuals. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, it says, And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. So here are these Christians at Corinth using their spiritual gifts without love, and Paul has to teach them what love really is. Can you imagine? I'm sure the Corinthians must have cringed as they're reading this letter, right? Here are these believers. They're thinking that they are super spiritual, They got all the gifts, and Paul says, you're not using them correctly. You're not using them in love. And we know they're not using them in love. Here's the description of what love really is, and this is not how you guys are acting at all. You're not being patient with others. And I'm sure that the Corinthians found it unbearable to wait for those who could not arrive before they started to eat the meal at the church's weekly gathering. That was a big issue. You know, they would have uh, the Lord's uh, table, the Lord's supper, and it was a full meal. And basically what would happen is uh, all the people that would show up with all their potlucks and everything, right, uh, they were not waiting on the poor people to show up. You know, maybe they were a little bit slower getting there to the, to the place, and everybody would just eat all the food, Right? And then all the poor people show up and they're over there scraping the pots, you know, all the crusty stuff. And that's not being patient, right? Uh, so this was a, these are very, very hard words to hear. Um, so we see that uh, throughout Scripture. And so before we begin to feel too smug, we, we are not doing all that well either, you know, with this kind of stuff, you know. Christians in our part of the world are not inclined to endure, endure ill treatment from anybody, right? How often do you hear, I wouldn't put up with that, right? We say that, I wouldn't put up with that. I wouldn't put up with that kind of behavior, right? Putting up with ill treatment is what long-suffering is all about. We are to put up with one another. Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And so we should silently endure ill treatments from unbelievers and believers alike, even as our Lord did. Uh, we see that in 1 Peter 2.18 and also Matthew 17.17 17, 17, and Acts 13.18. And so Paul put himself 
he put up, right, with a lot of these Corinthian believers. Uh, he, you know, it was what they said of him. They, they, they said that he's not an apostle, right? He's like, he's like, I've had to endure this of what you've said about me. He says that you say that I'm not spiritual, right? And he put up with a lot of things uh, from these people at Corinth. You know, in a day when our individual rights seem to have the highest level of priority, long-suffering does not seem to be very pop, a very popular characteristic. And yet it is one of the true terms that Paul uses to sum up the conduct of love. We are to be long-suffering with others. So here's the uh, second uh, positive word that uh, God uses of what... Uh, of uh, what uh, love is here, okay? We also see, secondly, that love is kind. Patience is the passive side of love. Kindness, however, is now the active side of that. And so we see that kindness is to actively do good to others, and it has its roots in providing what is needed. It is actively interested in the welfare of those about them. Kindness is the opposite of having a chip on one's shoulder. A chip on one's shoulder predisposes one to hostile action with only the slightest, the slightest, you know, agitation. But kindness in one's heart predisposes one to helpful action, which only requires the hint of a need before it takes action. I think the Good Samaritan is a very good example, a good illustration of what kindness really looks like. We see that in Luke uh, 10, 30, right? He didn't have to be told to act, nor did he even look uh, for a way out uh, to help his neighbor here, right? Uh, the others were passing by, but this man, he actually took action. He wasn't looking for excuses of not to do something. He just went ahead and did it. And so when he saw the man lying in the road in need, he willingly did all in his means to help. David, again, is another good example of kindness. What did David do? Well, he provided for Mephibosheth. Who was Mephibosheth? This was Jonathan's son, right? Remember Jonathan and, and David, right? Uh, they had this huge, good friendship together. Jonathan was Saul's son, his enemy, right? And what happens to Jonathan? He dies. And David, wanting and, and, and desiring to show kindness to the house of Saul, what does he do? He brings Mephibosheth into his kingdom to sit at the king's table. And what was wrong with Mephibosheth? He was crippled. And he says, you are going to eat at the king's table forever, right? You're going to eat here. You're going to, you're going to dine with me and showing kindness uh, to the house of Saul. And we also see that our God is kind. Listen to some of these verses, Luke 6, 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself, God, he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. That's our God. He is kind to ungrateful and evil men. 
Romans 2.4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? In order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 2.7. Ephesians 4.32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Titus 3.4-7 says, but when the kindness of God out of our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of needs which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so God, our God, is a very kind God. And if we are going to describe love, right, we're going to have to say that it includes kindness here. And if we are not being kind, then we are not being loving. And so as a Christian, we are commanded to be kind. And this is is seen in Ephesians 4.32 and Galatians uh, 5.22 as well. And so failing to show kindness is really disobedience uh, to God and his word. Galatians 5.22 is also a kindness is a fruit of the spirit. So we we have to be living this way. This is the way that God uh, desires for us to live. And I believe that kindness was surely lacking in the Corinthian church. Love is demonstrated by two general characteristics. Paul sums this up. One, long-suffering in the face of adverse treatment by others. And two, kindness toward those who abuse us. Long-suffering endures ill treatment without responding in a retaliatory fashion, and kindness seeks to do good to those who delight to cause us harm. That is what love is like, and I believe this is a great picture of what the gospel really is. Right? Here's our Lord Jesus. He's on the cross. He's enduring ill treatment from the hands of sinners. What does he do? He endures it. Right? He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't just wipe them all off the face of the earth, right? He is enduring ill treatment at the hands of sinners. As he's there, he's bearing our guilt, he's bearing our shame, he's bearing our sin on the cross, he bears God's wrath for us, he takes our place of judgment on the cross, and in all of that, he shows kindness and mercy to us. We might be thinking, well, you know, I'm not an evil person. I'm not this. I'm not that. But, you know, I think we fail to realize that even in all the good things that we do, like good things, right, they still fall short of God's glory. And even if God were to judge me on the good things that I do, I would still wind up in hell because it still falls short of the glory of God. And so we have to remember that God shows his kindness towards us. He shows us his grace towards us. He shows long-suffering towards us. And that's what truly a picture of love really is. You know, Romans 5, 8. But God commends his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we need to see and remember in all of this 
that love is patient and love is kind. Now let me give you here uh, the second half here of verses 4 through 6. And Paul is going to show us what love is not like, okay? And if these characteristics exist in our lives or in our church, then we need to confess our lack of love. And we need to get back to what Scripture has to say, what love really is. So now here are the negative, God's negative description of what love is not. Okay, now there's seven of these, right? Now remember, Paul is giving these things because these things were already evident in the life of these believers in the church. So here they are, okay? Number one, love is not envious or jealous. Jealousy means having an earnest desire... And it can be both positive and negative. We see this in these scriptures, Psalm 73, Psalm 37, 1, Genesis 4, 1 through 8, Esther 6, 1 Samuel 18, 7, Matthew 27, 18, and John 21. I heard a story of two business owners who were bitter rivals, and their stores were directly across from each other. And so uh, when one of the business owners would see a, a patron come in and buy something, the other one would get very envious and jealous of that as, while the other one stood there smiling, <laughs> right? Well, one night an angel came to the one business owner and he told him and said, I will give you anything you ask, but whatever you receive, your competitor will receive twice as much. The angel asked, do you want to be rich? You can be very rich, but he will be twice as wealthy. Do you wish to live a long and healthy life? You can, but his life will be longer and healthier than yours. What is your desire? The angel asked. The man frowned, thought for a moment, and then said, Here's my request. Strike me blind in one eye. That, my friend, is jealousy. Okay? Jealousy is this term. It conveys earnest desire. In our text here, okay, the desire is bad. A, a desire to have, to want something somebody else has. We might define jealousy here as a sadness or sorrow on my part due to the success of another. Jealousy causes me pain when somebody else feels pleasure. It is the kind of feeling a person feels when his or her competitor wins. And so these, these Corinthian believers were very jealous in the other gifts that maybe somebody else had and maybe they were wanting those and so they were not doing it in love. Jealousy is not consistent with love because love makes a sacrifice for others as where jealousy prospers at the expense of others. Love seeks the benefit and well-being, the edification of others as where jealousy takes advantage of others constantly. That's not love. The gospel, I believe, is the supreme example of love in contrast to jealousy. God made the ultimate sacrifice in the death of his son, to bring about our salvation. The Lord Jesus sacrificed himself for our salvation, paying the ultimate price, his own blood. And if this kind of sacrifice was required to bring about our salvation, how can we regret God's blessing on others? 
Ironically, because Christians are a part of the body of Christ, the prosperity of, of one member is not at the expense of the rest of the body, but for the benefit of the whole body. That's how we're supposed to be using our spiritual gifts in order to benefit the entire body of Christ. Love, here's the second one. Love does not boast and is not arrogant. Arrogance and boasting are the reverse side of the coin here. Right? So if you have envy and you have jealousy on one side, arrogance and boasting are on the other side. Arrogance and boasting are my, is my sinful response to my own prosperity. Arrogance or pride takes credit for my success that I may have, as though it were due to my own merit or superior efforts. Boasting is letting other people know about my successes in a way that tempts others to be jealous of that success. Arrogance and boasting are not Christian virtues. Humility is a virtue. Arrogance is a character trait of Satan, as we see in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And so we have to remember that we are not supposed to be arrogant. We don't boast about things. And I think grace, what really what happens, grace really pulls the rug out from underneath us when we're trying to be boastful and arrogant, right? Paul once took great pride in his performance as a Pharisee, but not after he was saved. As a Christian, Paul saw his contribution to the work of God in a new light. Listen to what he has to say here. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things again to you is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There it is. Right? We don't put any confidence in our flesh. We don't boast about what we can or what we can do, right? So we have to remember that love does not boast and it is not arrogant. Jealousy is my sinful response to the prosperity of others as where arrogance and boasting are my sinful response to my own prosperity. And you know, sometimes I think that we try to be very pious in our boasting. Right? Like, we seem, uh, like We seem like we are giving God the credit, but really we're the ones that are like, taking it, right? So we got to be very uh, careful about that uh, when we do that kind of stuff. Here's the next one. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not tolerate bad behavior, but requires good behavior. Paul's pretty clear here. Love does not tolerate bad behavior, right? The Corinthians are not believing themselves, and they're not behaving themselves very well. There's divisions and factions going on in this church. And what are they doing? They are tolerating bad behavior. They're saying it's okay to do this. It's okay to act this way. Okay? Love does not do that. Um, there are lawsuits we see in chapter 6, right? If they have problems with each other, instead of working it out, what do they do? They go to the courts and sue each other, right? That's bad behavior. Uh, chapters 8 and 10, they're participating in heathen idol worship celebrations. Um, all of this, like, they're, they're just behaving very badly within the church. They're tolerating uh, certain kinds of sin. 
And this is not what love is all about. Love is about behaving in an appropriate manner. It is about conduct befitting the the circumstance. The book of Proverbs has a great deal to say on this subject of appropriate behavior and how to act so you're not foolish but wise. One of the ways that we can sometimes behave rudely as Christians is done in the name of spirituality, right? Sometimes people use the phrase, I'm being spirit-led as a way to unload on other people and say things that are very mean and rude and unkind. God wants me for me to tell you. I'm being spirit-led to tell you. I'm sorry, that's not being spirit-led, okay? So we've got we to make sure that we are not acting uh, in this kind of way. So we should never blame God for our bad behavior. And uh, if we are those who truly do love God and others, let us not act badly, right? Um, so we need to love does not, we need to remember that love does not act unbecomingly or does not act rude. Here's the next one. Love is not self-centered. It does not insist on its own way. Love is not self-seeking or self-serving. Let me give you a couple ways this is explained by a couple Bible teachers. Leon Morris in his commentary on 1 Corinthians says this, Love does not seek its own, which might be understood to mean love is not selfish or does not insist on its own way. Though these two things are different, they are both born of self-centeredness, and it is this that love rules out. Love is concerned with the well-being of the loved ones, not with its own welfare. Gordon Fee, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 13, has this to say about this characteristic of love. This is the fifth consecutive item that specifically echoes earlier parts of the letter, this time uh, chapter 10, 24, and verse 33. In some ways, this is the fullest expression of what Christian love is all about. It does not seek its own. It does not believe that finding oneself is the highest good. It is not enamored with self-gain, self-justification, or self-worth. To the contrary, it seeks the good of one's neighbor or enemy. And so the, the Corinthians here are completely self-absorbed. It's all about themselves, right? It's all about me. And Paul says here, love is not self-centered. And you know, I believe that the church of our day is hardly different. Uh, we... we are just pretty much like the Corinthians, aren't we? We promote self more than sacrifice of others. We sometimes look at a church as what that church can give us, right? What can the church give me? What can the church provide for me? What can the church do for me? You see how it's all focused on self, right? The church is supposed to be about edifying the body of Christ, not always looking towards ourselves, right? So we need to remember that love is not self-centered. Here's the next one. So any fixation with self is self-centered and contrary to the way of love. We need to be reminded that as believers, we are not to focus on self, but rather the cross. The Christian life is about dying daily and the mortification of the flesh. Here's the next one in Paul's list here. Love is not irritable or easily provoked. Any fixation. Love is not irritable or easily provoked. This word here that's translated as irritable is best translated as provoked. Your translation may use the word provoked, and I like it as provoked because I believe it can mean provoked to anger, right, in a negative way, in a positive way. Paul, of course, here in this verse is using it in a negative sense. Um, 
but it's not irritable or easily provoked. Paul is describing here a short, fused person who is easily and quickly provoked to take action, which is not edifying to anyone. Love does not blow its top, lose its cool, or blow a fuse. It does not have a chip on its shoulder. And we see this, uh, Dr. James really gives us some good uh, Examples of this in James 1, 19 through 20 and James 3, 13 through 18. And uh, I would encourage you if uh, you, you have difficulty with, you know, your anger, you're provoked easily, right? Uh, we got several resources in the back, back there on anger. And I encourage you to pick up one of those resources and work through some of those things, Right? So love is not irritable, and it is uh, not easily provoked, okay? Let's finish up these last two ones here. Love is not resentful or keep account of wrongs. When we keep a mental log of people's shortcomings, failures, what they did, said, etc., to us, it only adds fuel to becoming resentful and bitter towards them and doesn't bring about true reconciliation. And so if we want to be loving towards other people, then we don't keep mental records of what they did here. They said this, they said that, they did this to me, they acted this way, they did this, they did that, they did this, they did that, right? When we do that, it just brings resentment and bitterness in our life. Let me ask you, does that, is that how God treats us? Does God keep a mental log of everything that you do and say? What has he done? He's removed our transgressions from us, right? As far as east is from the west. They've been buried in the depths of God's sea, right? Never to be remembered ever again. And so true love does not keep a mental log. It does not sit there and keep these check marks, right, of things that uh, people do. And so we got to make sure that we're not doing that. Here's the last one. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. The idea here of rejoicing at wrongdoing, uh, this is showing satisfaction with sin or allowing sin to happen and not feel any sorrow or frustration about it. And I, I think this can be manifested in a plethora of ways. It shows satisfaction, right, with sin. And it says, we, we don't have a problem with this. It's okay, it's okay, no problem, no problem, right? Um, you could say it's a form of apathy towards sin when you rejoice at it. In his book, Showing the Spirit by D.A. Carson, uh, which is an exposition of 1 Corinthians, he comments on this verse. He says that love does not enjoy endless discussions about what is wrong with the churches and institutions we serve and takes on such subjects when competing demands of righteousness require it. If there is any report of something right or truthful going on, love will quickly rejoice over it. Love will join with others in rejoicing over the truth. Love does not seek to make itself distinctive by tracking down and pointing out what is wrong. It gladly sinks its own identity to rejoice with others at what is right. And I believe in our culture today, people have very warped minds on what love is, and we see that there are people who are rejoicing in wrongdoing uh, all in the name of love, right? Just had a whole month about that. 
right? Love is love, right? Here's this huge rejoicing of what people say love is. And people are celebrating that, right? That's not love, according to Scripture, right? It's totally wrong. Celebrating sin is an affront to God. Isaiah 5.20 and Romans 1.32. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And so Scripture is pretty clear about this rejoicing at wrongdoing. Can I give you a very subtle way we rejoice at wrongdoing that is, that is tolerated in the church? Gossip. We tolerate it. We act like it's okay. And when we participate in gossip and we, when we allow gossip to go on around us or when we are part of it, we are actually taking part in rejoicing at what is wrong because we're not putting a stop to it. We're allowing it to continue and to go on. And so we got to remember that if we truly want to be loving, love is patient, love is kind. These are the negative things of what love is not. And so this is what I want you to bring about with all this. Is love impossible to demonstrate? On your own? Yes, it is. But I want you to remember, you have the Holy Spirit. If you know Christ as your Savior, you have the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of you. He will guide you into all truth. He will teach you what is right. And he has given us a great example of actually how to be loving towards people, right? The example of Christ. And so we are to follow Christ's example in all of this. And if some of these things are true and evidenced in our life or in our church, we need to repent of them, change our mind about them, and actually follow in truth. So let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.